thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK. Thank you for downloading this podcast from Talk Radio 702 and 567 Cape Talk. For more podcasts and more information on your number one news and talk station, please visit 702.co.za or capetalk.co.za. Your family, your community, your country, your responsibility. Be the best citizen you can be. Click on the Leader Say banner on this website to find out about your rights and responsibilities. Talk Radio 702 and 567 Cape Talk. Naked Scientist. 28 minutes to 10 o'clock and all your questions for The Naked Scientist you can send via SMS, uh, Twitter or email ready at 702.co.za but it's always best for you to call us now on 021-446-0567-011-883-0702. Chris, good morning. Morning, ready. Lovely to chat to you. The line is very clear. Now, I'm surprised that you're not in London today. I thought that was the place to be. <laughs> No, well, I don't know. It depends on what your perspective is. But I have to have a holiday sometime. Yes. So I have popped down to the bottom of Spain on the Mediterranean coast to have a little bit of a, a holiday. I, I actually came for a wedding. A friend oh. of mine is getting married. So we went to the wedding and then I'm, I'm having just a day or so enjoying some sunshine because that's the one thing that we've been a little bit short of in the south of England or in fact the whole of England for quite a while now lots of rain not lots of sunshine so I'm making up for the paucity of sunshine with a little bit of Spanish sunshine instead you you enjoy it you deserve it I'm trying I'm trying <laughs> <laughs> all right we're taking your calls on 021-446-0567-011-883-0702 now Chris I have an, an SMS here from Mandy Mandy wants to know what is the point of fizzy medicine and vitamins I imagine she's talking about the, uh, the effervescence, uh, such as uh, Calsa Vita or Corenza C or even Disprin. Why are they fizzy? What's the point? Okay, some things are fizzy intentionally. Others just fizz because of what's in the medicine. Mm-hmm. But the fizziness, I think, uh, and correct me if I'm wrong, anybody who's listening, but I'm pretty sure that the fizziness is there purely to lure you into buying it. <laughs> Shallow marketing. There's no benefit whatsoever in that fizziness for the most part. In some instances, you could argue that the fizziness creates currents of moving liquid. So if you put your teeth or your your dentures or something into a glass and you put one of those sterilizer tablets in, they fizz and the bubbles rising and falling in the glass will create currents that will help to carry the cleaning fluid past all the surfaces of the dentures. But you're not going to eat of the cleaning fluid Mm -hmm. so i can't really say that's a medicine but in the case of medicines the stuff is going to get mixed up thoroughly inside you anyway so i think it's just a shallow marketing trick to make you buy it the way they do it is that they mix uh, an acid usually something like citric acid or tartaric acid which is completely safe and uh, of no health consequence at all but is acidic only when wet And they mix that with usually a bicarbonate, like sodium bicarbonate, NaHCO3. Mm -hmm. And that also is a a base or an alkaline substance, but only when wet. 
and you mix those two powders together and then when you make them wet by either putting the tablet in your mouth and your saliva makes it wet or dropping it into a glass of water and making it wet, mm -hmm. then the two acidic powders or alkaline powders dissolve and the two react together and the acid attacks the bicarbonate, produces some CO2, the carbon dioxide gas, which you see as the bubbles, and it produces um, sodium citrate as the sort of salt product. And, and that's really of no health consequence whatsoever. Yeah. So um, I, I think it's just to make you buy it. Marketing gimmick. Okay. And speaking of salt, I think, Sam, you have a question about salt. Uh, Sam in Randberg. Good morning. Good morning to you and the Naked Scientist. Mm -hmm. uh, my question is, um, throughout history, humankind has used salt to preserve food and certain animals whenever they date. But then why do we have an expiry date on salt? Okay, if salt is used to preserve food, why do we have an expiry date? Do yes. I haven't even noticed. Hi, Chris. Expiry date yeah. on the salt, that is. Oh, okay. Very good question, Sam. And the answer is uh, there's probably no reason whatsoever, especially since a lot of the salt that we use comes out of the ground and was a rock, uh, rock salt and the stuff we put on the, on the roads and all that kind of thing. They, they've usually mined this stuff out from the ground. Or the other way that we get salt is sea salt, and you take seawater, spread it into a big salt pan, so this is a big shallow pond, and you let the sun shine on it, and every square metre of that salty water is getting energy from the sun at the rate of about a kilowatt. So it, rather than heat it up, you let the sun, with a, with a stove or something, you let the sun do it for you, and this drives off the water, leaves the salt behind, you scrape it off, and there's your salt. Fact is, the salt has been in circulation in the sea for as long as the earth has existed or as long as the, the earth has, has had has uh, had water in it. Hmm. So I do not understand why there should be an expiry date on the salt, apart from if the salt isn't properly dried and it's been kept in bad conditions and it may have got damp or something and there's some really hard organism that can survive in very salty conditions, but I find that really unlikely. So I think it's just because it's considered a foodstuff and all foodstuffs have to have expiry dates and that kind of thing, but I don't think it's really supported by sound science. Or it could be um, another marketing gimmick that uh, they know that you'll throw it out and buy another bottle. Well, you know, there's a really good point, and, um, and that probably is true as well. Um, I mean, I'm not dissing labelling on food, because at the same time, having labelling on food is important because it stops unscrupulous retailers from just flogging your sandwich that they've had standing on the counter for six years that has now gone from a cheese sandwich into a mould sandwich. But at the same time, it does mean that sometimes the law gets a little bit carried away, and I don't think there's really any justification for having a, a marketing date on salt. I mean, bear in mind, though, that when you've got a, a bag of salt or a, a a salt cellar on your table and it's open then it will attract water and moisture from the air and that means it mm. will deteriorate in terms of the quality of the the grains and all that kind of thing so the manufacturers could argue that um because the character of the salt will change slightly it won't be the pristine product they sold right. but the flavor and, and and it comes right to the point i make with the medicine as soon as you dissolve it in your saliva or you dissolve it in the food or whatever it's not going to make a blind bit of difference Let's go to Avril in North Riding. Good morning. Hi, good morning, Reedy. Mm. Uh, what I want to know is the distilled water that we buy for steam irons, is that just cooled, boiled water, or is it something else? Hello. Um, well, when you make distilled water, the clue is in the name. It's been distilled. 
And what that means is that you have the equivalent of a giant kettle and you heat the water inside the giant kettle and the steam comes off. Now, when you add energy to water, the water boils at 100 degrees, assuming uh, standard temperature and pressure. And the water particles come off as the steam, but what can't come off are the dissolved salts. So they're left behind. And that steam can be condensed in a condenser, a cooling surface, where the steam gives up its extra, extra energy and condenses back to the liquid form, and you collect it. Now, because the salts have all been left behind, because they don't have enough energy to break away from the water molecules and escape like the steam does, mm -hmm. you get a concentrated salt solution left behind, or a more concentrated salt solution, and you get pure water, which is your distilled form. And that means that when you put it in your iron you've got rid of all of the salts, so you won't form any uh, salty bits inside your iron on the hot surfaces of your iron or in your clothing when the steam comes out. And that's important because the iron has uh, an element inside it, obviously, um, which is how it's hot, and the water runs across that element and vaporizes, turning into steam, and is then pushed out through the holes. And if you made lots of chalky deposits inside the iron, A, it would put chalky deposits onto your clothes, but also it would block up those passageways and you wouldn't have the steam function working properly. When you just boil the kettle in your kitchen and uh, heat the water up and then let it cool down, then that's not too brilliant, um, but not too bad either. Mm -hmm. It's going to leave behind what we call the permanent hardness. This will be things like dissolved magnesium and, and that sort of thing, magnesium sulfate and that, those sorts of salts but it will remove the temporary hardness in the form of things like calcium bicarbonate. And calcium bicarbonate is what makes scale. So when you heat up calcium bicarbonate, it breaks down and it forms calcium carbonate, solid chalk, mm -hmm. and some CO2 gets boiled off. So if you boil water first, you do reduce that temporary hardness, which would form the scale in the iron. So you could spend money on lots of expensive distilled water, but you probably actually would do better to just, as you've suggested, use the water that you would boil to make tea with anyway in the kettle because you've removed most of the hardness. Mm -hmm. And then by the time it ever becomes a problem for your iron, chances are you'll need to buy a new iron anyway. So I wouldn't say one is much better over the other. Thank you, Avril. use kettle water. Luke in Renberg. Hi there. I have a question uh, regarding film and seeing as um, the Durban Film Festival is on right now, I think it's pertinent. Um, I've heard the statement that when we're, we go to watch a movie in the theater, we only ever see half the film. Um, I think that's because in order for our eyes to perceive the image, you need to have a frame of the film followed by a frame of darkness. Uh, and then an, another frame of film, this procedure is something to do with the Maltese cross. Perhaps uh, Chris can talk more about that. Film projection. Hello, Luke. Okay. Um, this is not something I've ever thought about and certainly haven't been asked about before so i don't know whether or not film producers are producing or, or adding dead frames in to separate the movement i think that the point to bear in mind here is that the way our visual system works is that once you get beyond a certain frame rate then you can't actually perceive uh, the update or the changing or the flickering and my concern is if you had dead film between the active frames then what would actually happen is that you'd, if you didn't run it fast enough, you'd end up being very conscious of the, the fact that things are updating. Whereas if you have just a series of frames and then you, you change them one to the next to the next so quickly, your brain can't keep up. You perceive this as a smooth, executed movie. 
So I don't know if people are putting these uh, invisible frames in. I, I think that's unlikely, um, especially because in the old days, film was so expensive that they probably wouldn't have wasted the film on having an empty frame. Mm -hmm. But let me check into it for you, just in case. And if anyone knows this, please yes, feel please. free to tweet at Naked Scientist, and, uh, and I will keep an eye on that and, and give you an update. Lovely. Thank you very much. Luke, Luke will look out for some answers. Let's take a break. We'll take more of your calls. Denver, Lynn and Abdul Tasneem will chat to you in a moment. 13 minutes to 10 o'clock. The Naked Scientist is on the line with us and we're taking your calls. Let's go to Lynn in Port Elizabeth. Hi there, Lynn. Hi there. Mm. Um, can Chris tell me the little particles of dust that might get into your eye, in, the, the way we knew is to pull the top lid over the bottom lid and then it disappears. Where does that particle of dust go to? Um, can you just uh, explain that again, then, because I didn't quite catch it. If you pick up, say, particles of dust in your eye that yeah. irritate, so you take the top lid and pull it over the bottom lid and it seems to disappear. Oh, yeah, I've had that. Uh, yeah, <laughs> and eyelids, where yeah. does that particle of dust yeah. go to? <laughs> I don't know. That's a really good question. Um, it, sometimes it doesn't seem to, to be there anymore, does it? Um, I think that when this happens, sometimes what, you, what you're effectively doing is scraping off the underside of the upper eyelid against the lower eyelid. So probably the, the, whatever the irritant was ends up deposited in your eyelash on, or line of eyelashes on the lower lid or against the margin of the, the lower lid. Or sometimes it just uh, washes it into the tear film, so it ends up in the corner of your eye and then gets deposited against the corner of your eye and slowly gets, gets washed out. Um, so I think that's probably where it goes, to be honest. But if anyone has any better suggestions, I can't think of one. <laughs> yeah. Sometimes if you look at your fingertip, you'll see that little thing that you've been, tr you've been trying to, to pull out there, Lynn. But thank you very much for that question. And there's an SMS here about lactose intolerance. Why is it suddenly so common? Does it have anything to do with our diets? And what does it mean? Well, lactose intolerance is an interesting uh, phenomenon in terms of paleoanthropology because if you look at the DNA of people from thousands of years ago then you would see that many of them in fact the vast majority were what we would call lactose intolerant what is lactose intolerance well lactose intolerance is where a person can't break down efficiently the main sugar lactose which is in milk and the reason that they can't break it down is because they don't have an enzyme which is in their gut and secreted into the gut wall so that when the milk goes past, they can dismantle it. Why would some people be able to break this down and not others? Well, the reason for this is that about 5,000 years ago or so, people started to farm properly for the mm -hmm. first time. They started to keep animals and they started to grow crops. And this was important because people, instead of living as small, isolated groups that were just like hunter-gatherers, people began to live in communities. And if you have farmers, then you can have somebody growing large amounts of food, which means that you can feed your community while the community then do other things, like build things or investigate things or do science or uh, go and work out how to build other things and explore new areas because they have a supply of food. And that's why farming was so important. And what that meant is that civilizations that adopted farming experienced quite significant selective pressure by evolution or, or to produce evolution in favor of being able to break down milk because keeping cows and having milk, milk was a, a very important foodstuff. Mm -hmm. 
So what you see historically is the early civilizations were lactose intolerant, but then when farming takes off, especially across Europe, you start to see a selection in favor of individuals who can break down lactose. And so you then see an enrichment of the gene for the enzyme that breaks down lactose in those populations. And if you then look at other populations around the world, you see they don't have that gene. So people from Africa very often don't have that gene because that farming happened after the main exodus out of Africa where modern humans evolved mm -hmm. and got established in Europe. Why it's becoming more popular could be either that people who are becoming more exposed to milk are therefore eating more milk products more often and therefore seeing the symptoms or that there's more information about it so people are now putting one and two together and say aha look we're, we're seeing when I eat this I get this symptom and this may be why so it may be a combination of better information and education and it may also be a, con um, a consequence of the fact that more people are eating more milk products that they may not have done in the past more often. Mm, mm, very interesting question that let's go to Tasneem Denver I'm coming to you next hi Tasneem hi good morning I love your show thank you um, question for Chris I am pregnant 11 weeks and I suffer from 24 hours nausea it's just I've tried different things nothing works I've been research and they say they don't know what is the cause of it what can I do and number two I can't eat food so how does my baby get nutrition when I, I, I can't even drink water? Oh, it's really oh, bad. I mean, I'm, I'm so oh, sorry to terrible hear that. Congratulations on being pregnant, of yes. course. Um, but, but I'm so sorry to hear that. And what I will say is that there will be many, many ladies listening to this who are either <laughs> there at the moment or who have been there and are saying, yep, I'm suffering too or I have suffered. It's very common. It's very common in the uh, 10 to 20-week phase of pregnancy and then in the majority of people, gets a lot better after 20 weeks. You will be relieved to hear. Mm. So on the one hand, you're condemned to feeling like this for longer. On the other hand, you, it, it usually gets better, so there's light at the end of the tunnel. In some people, it doesn't, and they have what's called hyperemesis in pregnancy. And if they're literally throwing up all the time or just can't keep anything down and can't eat and drink properly, then obviously that's a potential risk to their health and they may need some help because doctors can give them things to, to get the fluids in and make sure that the mother isn't suffering too much. It can also give you things to, to stop you feeling so sick. Um, we don't know exactly why this happens, but it's almost certain that when the baby begins to develop and the placenta is growing into the uterus, into the lining of the uterus, the mother's womb, so that it can get its blood supply and its nourishment, the baby secretes various factors, including a hormone, which keeps um, the what's called corpus luteum in the ovary going for much longer. So it produces progesterone, the female hormone, and that makes the um, blood supply to the baby get maintained while the baby's um, placenta is developing and before the placenta takes over that function. Doctors think that this beta-HCG made by um, the, the early pregnancy mm. is responsible for triggering at least some of the symptoms of morning sickness. Um, what exactly the evolutionary benefit is of this, don't really know. One theory I did come across is that, is that the suggestion is that it deters people from eating things that might be deleterious or damaging to the baby oh. when it's at the phase of pregnancy where all the major organ systems are developing because in that critical first tw 10 to 12 weeks, all of the organ systems are being patterned and the major organs are, are developing. And then after about 12 weeks, 
things just are all in place, they just start to grow and get larger. So if people are feeling sick when the baby is in, in its most critical developmental phase, they're less likely to indulge in eating behaviours or to be exposed to foods which could have a bad effect on the developing right. baby. So some people argue this is one reason why we have morning sickness, but uh, animals don't seem to have morning sickness and they seem to get along just fine. Mm -hmm. So I'm, I'm not sure whether uh, I thoroughly or totally believe that and I, I wonder if there might be some other explanation we haven't come across yet. Mm. And obviously if anyone else has any theories, do let us know, but great question. Yes, indeed. And the second part of it, Chris, about uh, if she's not eating and drinking water, then what is the baby living on? Well, the baby, quite frankly, is living off her. Uh, it sounds <laughs> awful, but a baby is basically like a giant parasite. Um, it, is, it is growing using the mother's energy. So the mother's energy comes in the form of the maternal blood flow coming through the uterus mm -hmm. and mother's sugars and amino acids, the building blocks of proteins, are siphoned off across the wall of the placenta by the baby and put into the baby. And the baby, in turn, secretes various chemicals that trigger the mother to make these things readily available. So in the first instance, there's no threat to the baby because the baby's metabolic demands aren't that high and it can get everything it needs from mum. But if mum is so unwell by continuously having morning sickness to the extent that she develops um, hyperemesis, then mum's biochemistry can go wrong and then eventually this could cause potential problem for both the mother and the baby. And that's where doctors need to get involved to help out. But if it's just the feeling pretty sick every day, then most mothers have got enough reserves early on in the pregnancy mm. that that's not going to be a major problem. Um, one little thing tells me, my wife tells me that she used ginger and uh, a little bit oh, of ginger in water and found that gave her great relief. I kept finding cups of ginger all over the house <laughs> when she was pregnant. And so she, she said that it, it worked for her. So you might want to try that. A little bit of ginger in water. Okay, I've heard that as well. Good luck to you, Tasneem. It sounds awful, but I hope that there'll be a joyful experience at the end of it. Chris, enjoy your holiday further. We'll speak to you next week. I'm looking forward to it. Thanks, Reedy. Thanks, Thank everybody. You. Bye -bye. See you soon. Bye. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com.